incredible women. One, a former nurse who has worked in some of the most volatile places in the world and is now a company managing director in the field of international development. The other is a county court judge and advocate for a more diverse legal profession. We'll be hearing from them both in this episode of the Beyond Buildings podcast, which is a recording of a JLL webinar to mark International Women's Day. We also hear from a JLL agent who wants to use his new leadership role to challenge pay structures and cultural biases that prevent women from having long and successful careers in real estate agency. So first up, Rebecca Osterman chats to Amy Gilday, Managing Director of International Development in APAC for Coffee, which is part of the consulting and engineering firm Tetra Tech. Rebecca then chats to James Montague, JLL's Head of Office Leasing in Queensland. And then JLL's Kate Pilgrim interviews her honour, Andrea Salamandris, the Victoria County Court Judge. I'm Rebecca Kent, host of this Beyond Buildings podcast. I hope you enjoy the interviews coming up. They're an absolute treat. Uh, We'll begin our discussion with a very incredibly dear friend of mine, the wonderful and courageous Amy Gilday. Uh, Amy began her career as a registered nurse working in places such as Haiti, the Congo, Gaza, Palestine and Sierra Leone before coming back to work in hospitals across Australia. Amy has worked at KPMG, the Australian Civil Corps and now as Managing Director at Coffee, which has recently been rebranded to Tetra Tech. Uh, Amy went back to work three months after the birth of her beautiful second child, Rose, and travelled to Palestine and Burma. She became managing director when Rose was only 12 months old. Uh, The US-based interviews leading up to her successful appointment were scheduled around Rose's feeding time and sleeping times. And in her role, Amy has overall responsibility for leading and growing uh, Tetra Tech's international development business in the Asia Pacific region, where she leads the acquisition and delivery of high value technical solutions. Amy, firstly, welcome and thank you so much for joining us from Adelaide. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me along today. And um, I'd also just like to briefly pay my respects to the Ghana people on whose lands um, and the buildings I live and work in stand. Awesome. Amy, you work with women all over the world and have seen firsthand how different cultures attempt to achieve gender equality. Can you please tell us a little bit about your work overseas and how you came into this incredible line of work and who inspired your career? Absolutely. So Tech International Development manages just shy of $1 billion worth in contracts with the Commonwealth of Australia and New Zealand governments delivering aid programs now across 14 different countries in the Asia Pacific. And this ranges from impact investing programs with social enterprises to basic primary and education programs to building infrastructure, schools and hospitals. Um, And through all of this work, uh, we take a focus on men, women and children and those differentiated impacts on each of them of economic shocks and vulnerability, opportunities for education and employment, um, sexual and family violence. And so in terms of how I came into this work, it was all I wanted to do from the age of 15 years and uh, I, was, I was born in Thailand. I grew up in Burma in the 80s at the height of the military junta. My family then lived in Indonesia and the Solomons and Vietnam. 
And so my my early formative years were very much characterised by this exposure to many different cultures, to poverty, um, and really saw how resilient the human spirit can be. So I always envied those professionals that I saw as these wild and unconventional people who pioneered and, and eked out this space for humanitarianism. So growing up then as a teenager, I had uh, newspaper clippings of Sudanese refugees on, on my wall. They were sort of wedged in there next to photos of Danny Minogue on, on her motorbike. Um, <laughs> it's <cringeworthy>, but... <laughs> Um, but and I then diligently learned and, and cultivated my French language skills so that one day I could be one of those pioneers and I really wanted to be one of those wild and unconventional people um, who really found that connection in a larger purpose is how I'd romanticise them in my teenage mind. So I carefully curated my, my path through university and various nursing roles to find myself at 23 with a seat on one of those planes heading to anywhere as fast as I could. And um, that first trip to Sierra Leone in West Africa with Doctors Without Borders really delivered on all of those adolescent dreams. Um, and so fast forward then to today with two kids in tow who have now also travelled the world. Uh, I do less long stints in country in highly volatile environments um, and now focus on supporting our teams with the right organisational infrastructure, policies and culture uh, to deliver this amazing work in country. Um, to get here took a lot of focus and determination and ambition. Um, this singular purpose has motivated me every single day to get out of bed. Um, every day was an opportunity to learn new skills that I could put towards this goal. And, and that level of drive doesn't come in the absence of um, a support network or a tribe. So you learn pretty quickly what you need to have in place to make those things happen and, and different things work for you at different times, particularly when you're a single parent. Um, for example, it, it once took eight people across two different states to support me on a short three-day trip to Canberra between looking after a baby, my son and the dog, and still get them to school and to sport. Um, so often the places I've moved to, your family and friends are far away. Uh, and so it requires some creativity and, and a good network of au pairs and babysitters. I've always said, Amy, that you love to chase the danger. I've never met someone <laughs> that just will just run towards wherever there's a crisis. You've always been incredible like that. And yeah, I've always been inspired by you. Um, so. For you, Amy, what does International Women's Day mean for you and also for your company's efforts overseas and locally? So here at Tech to Tech, we're really viewing International Women's Day um, this year in the context of March being Women's History Month. So really a celebration of women's contributions to history, to culture, to society. So that, that includes International Women's Day as well as the UN Commission of the Status of Women. Uh, so it's been a focus of general discussion, awareness raising, collaboration and goal setting around advancing gender equality for our business. So instead of sharing a cupcake and, and a cuppa today, um, we do that most days. There's a lot of cake in the office here, which is great. Um, we're, we're wanting to really extend our focus on women and gender equality and, and create opportunities for reflection. So each day of the month of March, uh, in the spirit of that, we've been sharing a resource which explores and promotes gender equality and women in leadership. 
So we've been asking staff to share their favourite feminist and gender equality resources to build out our virtual library. Uh, and they're being shared both internally and on our social media through the month. So we've had resources come in from all across the globe documenting women in leadership in the Solomon Islands to the experience of First Nations women here in Australia talking up to the white woman. Um, it's really evocative and eye-opening and, and once you start reading these resources and start seeing the structural inequality and all of the places where women aren't, you can't unsee it. Absolutely. And on a personal level, I understand that you have in the past experienced challenges and now being a managing director, you're at the top of your field. How have you maintained that, you know, that commercial toughness while maintaining your compassion and empathy for people? Mm. It's a great question. And, and I think when, when I speak with, with my girlfriends, um, when I speak with colleagues, you know, so many women experience sexual harassment in the workplace and, and indeed I've experienced sexual harassment in every single workplace that I've worked in at varying degrees of gravity. And, and so you're constantly faced with conscious decisions about what you do with that experience, both in terms of reporting and in terms of processing emotionally how that makes you feel as an individual who's who may have been violated or what it means to be part of a thriving workplace and is it safe. Um, so I've chosen different paths at different times and in large part those decisions have really been driven by the younger females who are coming up behind me and what it would mean for them and their safety and what they would experience. And I find or I believe that being a woman in the leadership roles carries many different responsibilities for that role modelling and representation and agency. So I know women and men of colour who also are the first in their field also often carry that weight of additional responsibility to speak out. Um, and importantly as well, I feel as a leader, creating a space where it's safe for survivors to speak out without shame is really important. And to do that, you also need to be vulnerable as a leader and open about your own experiences. Um, so on a, on a personal level for me, it's always been about that, that mentoring and leadership role care for others, uh, but also about maintaining that strong sense of purpose and self and that whatever that event was doesn't define you and how you work through emotionally those events really govern your own state management going forward and how you continue to show up thereafter, both for yourself and for others in the workplace. Um, I'm also just really stubborn and competitive and perfectionistic. So I won't let any of that stop me. Um, it may have slowed me down a little sometimes, but you work through it and you definitely come back stronger. Yeah, and I've always known you. I mean, I've known Amy for 25 years and I've always known you to lead with your heart and you, you feel the world and you've always been incredibly kind and just a delight as well. So, um now, I know that Tetra Tech's policies for attracting and retaining female employees are great and you have had have made enormous waves within the organisation at spinning that gender gap on its head. Can you tell us a little bit about your successes there? Sure. So I'm very privileged and very um, honoured to be the first female CEO within our 50-year history of our Asia-Pacific based operations. Within our parent company, Tech Tech as a whole, I'm one of two female CEOs out of 41 different businesses. And 
depending on what definition of millennial you take, I'm the only millennial in a senior executive position. I just scrape in. <laughs> Um, but since coming into this role, I've I've strived to really bring more diversity and inclusion to to all that we do, as you suggested, Becky, um, and not only from a gender perspective, but also from a cultural and, and cognitive perspective. So now in our APAC operations, uh, and this change has really come about in the last 18 months since I stepped into this role, 75% of our executive are now women. And across all of our operations, we have a 40-40-20 target for women in leadership that we are hitting across all of our 500 staff. 50% um, of our staff are expatriate and 50% are local to the countries that we're working in as well. So really pushing to bring um, a localization agenda and that cognitive diversity and support women in all of the countries we work in um, to keep moving forward. My, my next goal will be about how we systematically tackle the gender pay gap that we've inherited through our work and making sure that those women in leadership and those aspiring to leadership are provided with those opportunities and remunerated in a way that's equitable as well. And so part of that in terms of policies and recruitment strategies is around how we can explicitly seek to encourage and support diverse applicants going forward, you know, what additional supports and incentives we can activate to attract and retain diverse team members as well. We know particularly in a COVID-19 environment, um, it's had a disproportionate impact on women and the risks around COVID are particularly a disincentive for women. And we've observed that that flows through recruitment as well in reducing the number of women who've been applying for roles and committing to positions. Um, and there's lots of research showing that women are you know, more likely to have those care responsibilities for parents or children, um, particularly when things go wrong. So we know that, that women are facing some additional barriers and challenges at the moment. And so we're really working across our business to identify opportunities for mitigating those risks and offering um, balancing incentives such as childcare support or more frequent reunion travel, um, and guarantees that time spent in quarantine, for example, counts as service rather than leave. And so really trying to model some of those um, good practices around diversity and inclusion and, and really ensuring that visibility and genuine participation of teams within that. Amazing. Um, despite the policies and procedures current, you have currently in place, how else could we challenge ourselves to encourage women in typically male-dominated industries, not just in Tetra Tech, but in a broader sense? So first and foremost, and, and Becky and I talk a lot about purpose, and yes. it's 100% about purpose, right? <laughs> about doing what you love and being authentic and, and living that life's purpose. And if that's what drives you, man, woman, other, you can go and do anything. And I firmly believe that. So first and foremost, it's challenging ourselves and who you want to be and knowing yourself and your limits and your strengths. And secondly, then I think it's about challenging yourself to step out of that comfort zone and find those mentors and sponsors and role models that, that might inspire you with one thought or action or be there guiding you the whole way, but just about how you can listen and learn from them, lean on them, research their CVs, stalk people on LinkedIn without being creepy, um, <laughs> vision what you want your CV to look like in 5, 10, 15 years, what would it say, what pathways have these other individuals followed and what can you lay out and navigate that will take some twists and turns and won't be linear, um, but will help provide sort of some stepping stones for you and 
don't be afraid to reach out to people on LinkedIn and ask them about their experience. I have a number of young women over time who have cold messaged me on LinkedIn asking for career advice and you know, I love having a coffee with them and hearing more about what their dreams are and just giving any small ideas or sponsorship that I can um, to support them on their way. And, and I guess finally, in terms of that challenge is around surrounding yourself with people with a growth mindset and a tribe that support you every step of the way. And as you said, Beck, we've known each other since we were 13 and you and our other friends have been there cheering me on every single step of the way through every setback, every promotion um, and celebrating um, you as a human. So it's it's beautiful. And we all need that sense of connection and support from the strong men and women in our lives um, who do love us unconditionally. And I absolutely love doing it every step of the way, Ames. <laughs> <laughs> So speaking of attracting women in a male-dominated industry, I'd like to welcome our next panel member, James Montague, affectionately known as Monty. Um, James began his career in office leasing at St Alice um, 15 years ago at JLL at the tender age of 20. Mm. And uh, this year he's been appointed as uh, head of office leasing in Queensland. Welcome, Monty. Thank you. How are you? Um, so, James, you've been a strong advocate for encouraging women in a very male, very male-dominated world of agency. Uh, why do you think it's important to challenge what seems to be the industry norm and seek female, you know, higher female employment? I think from our point of view in agency specifically, we're always being challenged by our clients on how to do things differently. and what innovation we're bringing to the table and what agency once was is very rapidly changed into something that's a lot more uh, advice-based and out-of-the-box thinking sort of um, advice. The, the challenge we have is if we're only using the same sort of thinking in recruiting, we're never going to get real diversity in our ideas and what we're bringing to the table as an agent and servicing a client. So I think the thing that is really important to me is having a team that's made up of lots of different thinkers mm -hmm. and you're just not going to get that if you've got eight of the same person. Yeah, so, carbon copy. Yeah, so I think, you know, different ways of doing things, different ways of thinking about how to do things, um, certainly different processes and the way that uh, men and women do things is just fundamentally different. And I think we're not going to get good innovation and good ideas if we're not diverse in that way. Yeah, 100%. And I think that, you know, women are naturally forward thinkers, forward planners. They love to, you know, make sure that the house is all in order. They love to make sure that work is in order. I think they're naturally organised people yes. as well. And the men <laughs> love to do that, that driving. Um, how limiting do you think, you know, an agent's commission structure is with salary for females? Yeah, it certainly presents a big challenge in retention. Um, the attraction piece is, is certainly still something that we're, we need to work on, but mm. the retention of good women is really um, something that we need to give a lot of focus to. And, and right now in agency-based roles, it's commission structures that have lower salaries and, and it's predicated on, you know, deal doing and uh, you are on the tools all the time mm -hmm. and can have no distractions. And, and I think that that's 
not going to be a, an environment that's fostering good women and encouraging them back into a role where they feel like I can't do all of these things that I'm doing as well as do an agency role. And I just, it's trying to challenge that thinking and breaking that down and maybe looking at the way that where our pay structures are currently a pretty rigid sort of formula and seeing what, what and having the conversation that's fluid and seeing what, what can we do to enable those women back into the workforce and back into those agency roles post children. And I think it's really about support and it might not be about the pay. It might be more about we'll bring on another person to enable you to do everything that you need to do so that you can still hit your targets and feel like you've got a running partner that's there all the time. Um, yeah, it's something that I think the industry as a whole is really sort of struggling to come to a solution. But unless we're not, unless we're having this conversation, we're never going to get there. Yeah, and I understand that there is a research paper being um, developed by JLL at the moment, and it is reviewing that um, you know females in a comm commercial agency and how we can attract and retain mm. those women. And you're right, it does absolutely come down to support like Amy said it comes down to that tribe of you know it's family it's um, au pairs babysitters everyone and and also in the work environment it's really important to have that nurturing structure with you know with um, people coming back from paternity leave or and maternity leave as well. I've heard you speak about the three four cups you fill one up. Oh, the burners? Burners. Yeah, the four burners. That's like a really important thing to think about when you are going to burn out mm -hmm. if you're turning one burner on too too hard and that support structure will enable you to kind of keep everything a little bit more balanced. Yeah, that's right. And you, you have the family, you've got your health, you've got your friends and you've got your work and they say to be very successful, you've got to turn two of those burners off. To be somewhat successful, you've got to take turn two off and that's... It changes as you get older, it changes as you, you go through life and some burn very brightly um, and yeah, and, and sometimes that's at a trade-off. Mm. Yeah. So what are you doing as the new head of leasing? What are you planning on doing um, within your role? How do you feel like you're going to make a change? We have had a bit of change in our team and that's enabled me to tackle sort of the recruitment side of things a bit differently and we were um, a very we have been a very stable team and we've still got a really stable leadership base and we've got a couple of positions that have opened up that will mean that we can really cast the net a bit wider and the thing that I'm really focused on is trying to get grassroots people and recruiting from an, a university base to enable us to really see what talent is out there. And for me, it's, uh, I sort of set out with this focus. My wife has been in agency for over a decade and she's got a really strong network of people that she's dealt with. And she sort of helped me go into that space to say, I, like, who is out there? And that's the, the big question that uh, unless you ask it, you're never gonna know. And, our business is very referral based and it's um, kind of clicky in a way and I just wanted to try and break that. Um, if we go to the unis and we and the, one of the things that I said to the recruiter is um, let's start looking at what the skill sets are and focus on those rather than necessarily what degree they have. 
Um, so are there recruiters out there? Are there resi agents? Are there... Um, yeah, and amending just, those job descriptions to suit, you know, both genders yeah, as well. Yeah, four or five people run their eyes over the job description <laughs> <I bet>. before, <laughs> before it went out because we really, we really do want to see, you know, I, I would like to have a minimum of five or ten interviews that are with women mm. and as a focus rather than just sort of go, oh, it was only blokes that applied, so unfortunately that's mm. sort of what we've got. And yep. unless you're sort of asking why aren't we getting women apply, mm. then you kind of it just falls back into the groundhog day of what we've been doing. So. Yeah. Uh, it's just giving it a bit of focus, really, yeah. more than anything. Yeah, and just being conscious of it as well. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. And I know you've been here for a long time as well, so <laughs> you would have seen a lot of changes throughout that time. And how have you seen JLL empower women? Yeah, I think um, days like today or, you know, the International Women's Day conversation, I want to call it a movement, call it a conversation, is something that has brought forward um, some of our leaders' sort of passion for this space. And like, I was only told recently that Stephen won't sit on a board or panel unless there's a woman on that panel. And I don't know if that's broadly publicised, but I think that kind of thinking is from the top down what we really need if we're going to, again, just break the cycle. And um, what I've seen is, um, I mean, I'm sitting here with three incredible women and Eva's, as an example, has been full-time with us and she does her role and then probably three of our roles and then this role and <laughs> you just don't get, you don't get that kind of efficiency. <laughs> what were you saying yesterday, that men just love to procrastinate? <laughs> can, can do, can do. I, I mean, your point about future thinking is something that, we really have to try to do, whereas innately you do do. Yeah. <laughs> and we can be reactive and that, like, in agency, your whole job is to be proactive and be a self-starter and try and think about things before they happen so you can solve problems. And our uh, that's one of the things I love about being an agency is it's really fluid and it changes all the time. And uh, But you can let some of the other things fall by, by the wayside yeah. if you're kind of in your bubble. And so having someone that's telling you, don't forget, you have to do these <laughs> things and they're tasks that I set myself. <laughs> it's really important. Yeah. Um, and I'd love to have that not just, you know, Eva's in an analyst role and our support, I'd love to have that in each layer of the business so that you're getting accountability on a way higher level mm. because you're all thinking differently about how you need to do what you do. Yeah, absolutely. And for you, what does International Women's Day mean? It's one of those things you pause to think about. Um, for me, I have a son and a daughter and the concepts that they could both apply to a job and one would have a leg up over the another, like, really, really bothers me. Um, so for me, it's really kind of breaking this uh, down to a point where we don't have to have an International Women's Day. It's just a normal normality that we're all working as people within organisations. Yeah. Um, yeah. 
a, a man and a woman are treated exactly the same way because you, you've all got different skill sets and it's, it's about judging people based on what they can do rather than necessarily all the other things like where they went to uni or what school they went to or whether they're a boy or a girl or any of yeah. that. Absolutely. Absolutely. So Cheryl Sandberg, the COO of Facebook, started a ban bossy campaign to break gender stereotypes. Her international survey found that 92% of female participants were called bossy while their male counterparts were called assertive. The same applies to words such as emotional and hysterical. How can we challenge our colleagues to use more inclusive language? Yeah, it's not, this one's one that's hard for me because I don't view there to be a difference in the way that I talk to people. Um, as an example, I have called male counterparts of mine emotional and <laughs> bossy is just not a word that I really use, but I've never said, wow, he's assertive. Um, <laughs> so I, I kind of think it's really more about just calling out inappropriate or just bad handling of situations yeah um and it's slight comments isn't it it's yeah, just here and there like yeah. yeah when you're having a beer or whatever it happens just call it out yeah you know you can't say that or don't say that yes or you know it's probably not can't say that it's don't say that because mm. that's i don't want to hear that don't talk don't speak like that in front of me and if that's a leadership position and you're putting your foot down then hopefully that cascades through your business absolutely yeah, it's an interesting concept that bossy and assertive um, it just doesn't really come into my thinking. That's because you're one thinking. of the most approachable, kindest people in the office. So. <laughs> <laughs> so there has been, you know, a lot of media attention at the moment uh, recently calling out unacceptable behaviours towards women. Obviously, this is a very topical discussion, the issues of consent uh, and the systemic issues that exist in school and, and the work environment, similar to what Amy was discussing earlier. So, you know, you touched on it earlier, but what are the conversations do you think that we should be having to achieve equality? Yeah, like it really stems from be, just be a good human. Like don't, if you, if you see behaviour that you don't agree with, then call it out and don't be afraid to call it out because, and again, it comes from a leadership point of view. If you're not going to get persecuted because you're calling someone out being inappropriate or doing something that's unacceptable, then... Mm -hmm then you can be more vocal about saying, like, don't do that or don't say that. Um, and if something happens to you, then having the ability and the support to be able to say, this happened to me the other day and it doesn't sit right with me. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's just having an open door policy, sort of make sure that you're there to be able to have the tough conversations as and when they come up and then act on, act on it. Yep. Don't sort of say, oh, yeah, that's really tough and not great and I'll think about maybe talking about doing something, you know, <laughs> just do and do what you say you're going to do. That's, mm. that's the one thing that since I've taken this role on is to do what I am telling people I'm going to do. That's, that's number one thing for me. Yeah, absolutely. And I must say, you know, JLL have the, the men in our industry are – massive advocates for women. They're all, all of the leadership team have always been fantastic and I've felt incredibly supported personally and I'm sure Lydia and Eva will attest to the same. Yep. Um, 
Amy and James, uh, just have the most incredible level of respect and admiration for the two of you. And I've been delighted to have this conversation with you both. Thank you so much for joining us today. Um, I'll hand you over to Kate Pilgrim in Victoria now and continue the conversation with Her Honour Judge Andrea Salamandris. So I'm here in Melbourne with Judge Salamandris, who was appointed to the County Court of Victoria in February 2016. Prior to her appointment, she had practiced in personal injury law for over 20 years and was an accredited specialist. She was a partner at Holding Redlick, which was also the firm's diversity partner. Whilst at Holding Redlick, Judge Salamandris was actively involved in pro bono cases, including the Stolen Generations litigation for members of the Northern Territory Stolen Generations community and the case against special religious instruction in state primary schools. In the county court, Judge Salamandris is the head of common law division, shares the responsibility for the medical negligence list, and is also the court's IT judge. So thank you, Judge, for joining us today, taking time out of your busy schedule. Um, so as we've just heard, the property industry, uh, particularly in leadership level, is quite male dominated, which I think is fair to say that is reflective of the, the legal sector as yes. well. So um, we're particularly interested today to hear about the passion that you bring and how you have chosen to challenge in certain instances the diversity um, and um, most recently with the running of the county court system. So, where do you want me to start, Kate? Yeah. Do you want to talk about my background, why I... Yeah, so perhaps we start just touching on that and how yep. it drew you to that legal profession. Yeah, okay. So I, um, I was raised by a mother, a family of six children. She was a single mum. One of my sisters had cerebral palsy. And at the age of um, five, my dad left and my mum um, was on the local kindergarten and soon enough, she decided to stand for the local council where she was the first female. They had to build a toilet for her because there was no toilets back then. Nobody thought about women being councillors. Um, so my mum soon after became the mayor. And so I grew up in a family where um, there was this, she was effectively a working mother because even though she didn't have a pay job, she did volunteer work. Um, in the local council and was out most nights of the week. Um, so I certainly grew up thinking that women could do um, everything possible. Um, then when I was 13, I was involved in a court case, my sister who had cerebral palsy, there was a court case involving um, my sister and about whether she could access medical records. And so there was a court case in the county court, which ironically is the court obviously I've now been appointed to. And I went to court every day and there was a female barrister there and, you know, this was Oh, well, I'm not good at maths. This was, I'm going to say, 35 years ago. And it was really rare for a woman to be in the court then. Um, but she was a junior counsel and I thought she was amazing. I saw her in court every day. The senior counsel she was with was a guy that looked like the, um, um, John Cleese from um, Faulty Towers. Anyway, I, was, I, I fell in love with the court system. I know um, as a group of property people, you may not realise how awesome the court system is, but it is mesmerising to be in court. So I was like, right, that's what I want to do. So I studied really hard at school. My mum encouraged me the whole way through. Um, I didn't have great marks at the end of year 12, so I um, studied hard in an arts degree and then managed to transfer into law. And then eventually I ended up at Holding Redlick. But I've got to say, when I got to Holding Redlick because of my mum, I just had always thought women could do everything. Um, and I very fortunately landed at a firm where the, the senior people at that firm also believed that women could do anything. So the chairman of the firm, a guy called Peter Redlick, who was the founding father of the firm, and also the, the national managing partner, a guy called Chris Lovell, who people in the property industry may well know, 
they both just supported me. So from the time I was a junior solicitor, um, there's an expression in the law called um, pink briefs or pink files and blue files. And the blue files were the good, juicy, high, you know, high profile files. And the pink files are the easy, kind of not so interesting files. There was never any pink or blue files at Holding Red Link. So I just got great files from the outset. Um, and probably the best case that I got as a junior solicitor first year was a stolen generation case. And so I then just had this career at Holding Red Link where I, in some respects I feel incredibly privileged because um, there was never any suppression in my ambition. But these guys were always kind of just championing me and the best um, probably story of, of these men championing me was um, I was offered partnership with the firm literally the day before I gave birth to my first child. So um, it would have been very easy for the firm to say, oh, she says she's going to have a short period of maternity leave and come back and work the same. But they they didn't. So they, I remember I got the phone call from Chris Lovell and he offered me partnership. I called my mum and my husband consecutively in tears and they thought I was in labour. I was like, no, I'm not in labour, but my dream to be partner was finally being realised. And so I, in fact, the next day then went in and met Chris Lovell found out what being a partner for law firm meant, and then went down to the county court. Again, it has featured in my life always. I saw a case that was running for one of my clients, and then I thought I probably was going to labour, so I proceeded to then go to hospital and have a gorgeous baby. And then, for the completion of the, the I guess, where everything leaks in, um, and Kate knows this, because Kate has known me for many years, 10 days after my son was born, I took him, having had a Caesar, I was walking very slowly, pushing the pusher, but I went to the High Court and sadly that was the day that we lost, ultimately lost the stolen generation case. Um, but I was there with my son, 10 day old son in the High Court. Um, we lost that case, but ultimately the government apologised, so I still think we won that case even though we, we lost it on legal points. And that was one of the only national televised yeah, live, yeah, yeah. live it was, cases. It was a huge, the stolen generation, I, it was a privilege to have done. Um, again, I, as I said, I did it early in my career. It was a pro bono case that we did for six years. We acted for 700 members of the Stolen Generation from the Northern Territory. Uh, and in that role, I got, this was all pre-kids, obviously the, in the High Court, I've just had my first son. But for the years that we did that case, it involved a lot of travel to the Northern Territory and meeting these people who told um, the worst the worst possible stories of their forced removal from their, their parents. Um, Lorna Cabillo, who was one of our lead plaintiffs, um, she told the story that she was taken with 13 other kids on a bus and, and as they were taken away from their mums, their mums were beating their heads with stones and, and grieving for the removal of their children. Um, and then Lorna and others were um, subjected to physical and, and sexual abuse at the homes. I mean, it was... It was a remarkable case to have been able to do um, and to be able to act for all of those those people. And as I said, we ultimately lost the case because of limitations law, but but ultimately when the when the federal government, when Kevin Rudd apologised, that was ultimately what it was about. It was never about the money, it was about the recognition. Sorry, that's a long answer. Yeah, we've covered <laughs> a few questions here. We might just go back to, this is something that Amy touched on earlier, was the um, gender gap review, and I know yeah. that Morning Red Link, you were part of that diversity yeah. um, partner. And do you want to talk a little bit yeah, about that? Yeah, I, I, th I think it's really good to do because even though I, we were, I was at a firm where I believe we always had paid women the same, 
Um, the only way to know that is to do the analysis. So um, I, the firm became a member of the Diversity Council of Australia and we sought to be employer of choice of women and part of that was doing this equity analysis to make sure that like-for-like -like positions were paid the same. And, and I think all, all companies should do that. I know in the meeting yesterday there was talk about whether businesses should be exposed if, if they're not um, meeting acceptable standards. The other thing we did at Holding Redlick was we then also looked at it as a partnership level and normally that's not looked at. Um, but we looked at it because I felt really strongly there was no point um, being conscious of what you were doing with with the employees, you needed to make make sure the partners at the the top of the tree were also um, there was there was a um, a quality there that it wasn't just let's just make the boys the the equity partners and pay them the big bucks and we'll just have some women at the salary position and and not worry so much. It looks good. Um, so we did that and the, and the figures were um, almost parity. Well, this was years ago, but one or two percent off. It was remarkable. So. I think that was a really good thing to do. I encourage all businesses who don't already do it to do it. I mean, the other thing I've actually kind of applied that reasoning now to the court. One of the things um, I've just introduced in the court in the last year is to look at to keep the to keep trackers um, for reporting purposes to keep track of um, male and females in court and also to record the speaking roles because um, the speaking roles in court is the fun part in court. So you could you could say um, potentially, well, we breathe 50% men and women, but if the men are getting the speaking roles and the women there are just taking notes in court, then that's telling a story that is saying we're not treating these people the same. So we've just started to collect that data. They've been doing it in the Court of Appeal for a few years. But I think that's important. And there's organisations out there like um, WorkSafe, TAC, um, the state government spend a lot of money on, on legal advice. And that information can be telling and it just informs people to be more proactive. You know, in many respects, I would like to think, and I guess where I've moved through in life, I've never felt um, I don't, feel, I don't feel I've ever been held back as, um, as a woman in my career, but I'm conscious the figures show us that, that we, we must be. Um, and so these are just things that we can do to make sure we're doing the right thing and treating people as equally um, as, as we should be. Yeah, great. So you have uh, two, two, two teenage boys, and um, at the time of, after having Kurt, your first, you made a decision that your husband, George, would stay at home and um, run, run the house, yeah. so to speak. Um, so I guess it'd be interesting to sort of reflect on that, but also what do you hope to impart on your teenage boys? What yeah. yeah, so um, look, every family makes decisions that is right for them. For, for our home life, it meant that my husband, who didn't love his career as much as I have loved mine, that he would really be the primary carer. And so I took four months maternity leave and then he stayed at home and looked after both um, boys in their first um, year of life. After that, we did a bit of full-time work each. It was it was hard, but we managed with family support and good childcare. But really, when they started primary school, was when we decided that George would be a stay-at-home dad. 
Um, I remember someone said to me years ago, and for those of you that have got little kids, remember this, and those of you who've got teenagers and grown-ups, you'll confirm this is right. Little kids, little problems, big kids, big problems. So in some respects, even though it seems crazy when they're, they're pre-school, pre it is nuts, but it's a different nuts. So the older they get, we just wanted to have one of us more present. And so um, fortunate for me, my husband um, agreed to stay at home so I could work as crazy as um as I as I needed to. But having said that, again, practical tips. I like events like this so we can share practical tips. Um, I was always really conscious of, I guess, being as present as I could for the hours that the kids were at home. So I would work from 5.30 till 7 at home and then I'd be there bright and sparky to get them up and get them out the door and then I'd go to work and do my day of work but I'd always try and leave at a decent hour. So I could be out by five, I'd be home by 5.30 and then, you know, two hours of madness, three hours of madness, um, food, bath, homework, and then they would go to bed and I'd do the rest of my work. And and there are parents, but predominantly women, I think, doing that crazy, crazy juggling where we want to have our careers, but we want to be the ever-present mum. Um, and and that is, yeah, mum is the number one job in the world. Megan Markle said that last night, so it must <laughs> be right. Um, but the other thing, another tip, sorry, Kat's going to say, gosh, she won't stop talking this morning. Um, as a judge, you're not allowed to talk. You've got to be quiet as a judge. You're going to listen. So I'll tell you what, you give me, yeah. Um, one thing I would often think as a, as a parent, sometimes there'll be a work function, there'll be a, a function for your kids. You're like, which one do I go to when there's a conflict here? Um, my test was always, what am I going to think in five years' time? Am I going to remember the, the meeting Julia Gillard at the lunch or am I going to remember, you know, my, my child going to the Book Week Assembly? And sometimes the Book Week Assembly or the, the carols or whatever it is, it mattered and you needed to be there and you had to say no to the work event. Julia Gillard, Penny Wong, they kind of tended to trump school events over the years. Um, but, yeah, that, so that's just a help. Sometimes you, you want to be in two places and you can't be. Yeah, I miss my son's 10th birthday and he will never, ever let me forget Yeah, that. but was it a good event? It was a conference, so I really had no choice. Right. Yeah, yeah good forward, though. technology. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Some technology you might yeah. be able to manage that in the future. Um, so we've spoken about pro bono and stolen generation case, but yeah. you've been a huge supporter of diversity partner at Holden Redlick, but also other community and giving back to the community. Do you want to talk about the importance of, of that? And I guess that sort of brings out your passion as well. Yeah. Areas. I guess I've always wanted to do more than just, I love legal work and I've always loved my legal work, but I, I have always wanted to do what I can, I guess, to support others. So the program work was amazing and I did that. Um, for a number of cases of holding red legs, stolen generation was obviously the most significant. I was also on lots of committees, and I guess um, sometimes when people say, well, where do you get to where you are in your career? I've got to say one reason why um, I think I probably got asked to be a judge. You don't know when someone, when the Attorney General calls him and asks me to judge, you don't say, why are you picking me? You just go, yeah, right, okay, that's an honour, amazing. Um, but I think it was probably because over the years I was on lots of committees, both internal to the firm but also external, law reform committees, um, professional committees, um, and as well as the pro bono work, because I think it is a matter of, I guess, trying to give back, and people respect people that, that try and, and, and give back. So, um, and I, I have always enjoyed that. And, you know, it was also the diversity work that, that I did at Holding Redlick in trying to promote women. I guess I was always known to, to be championing other people, supported by the, the male champions at, at my firm. Um, 
So it just, I think it created opportunities and it's always meant that I've had an amazing working life because I've met lots of interesting people on the way that I've been able to help and they've helped me. So yeah, it's great. So yeah. talk us through when you got the call from the attorney and what that what was going through your head at that um, point. I, so this is typical female response. So we're stereotyping here, but this is a typical women's response is, nah, I'm not sufficiently qualified. This must be a mistake. So um, I originally said no to the attorney because I didn't think I was smart enough to be a judge. And it took um, my husband and two um, judges from the Supreme County Court who had put me up to the attorney to talk me into believing that I could do it. And, you know, um, I think it's Cheryl Sandberg's book talks about that, um, that often if you're going to um, uh, do a poll of men and a poll of women, women will apply for a job when they're 120% qualified and men will apply for a job when they're about 70% qualified. Mm -hmm. And I was that typical person, so I was completely thinking no way. I'd gone through the same process when I was asked to be um, an equity partner at the firm. I initially said no. My husband was one to push me along. Um, I said no to be on the firm's executive, and I certainly said no to the attorney because I just didn't think I was up for it. Um, and I, I, it was fortunate that I had my husband and these other two male judges pushing me to say, you'll be great, you'll, you'll do it fine. Um, and so eventually then I did say yes, and I haven't looked back, it's the best job um, in the world. You're very biased, passionate about yeah, what you do. do. I yeah. love what I do, I love what I do. Um, and so yes, I've been at the court five years now. It involves hearing lots of cases, which are fascinating. It's not, um, it is a serious job. Um, so yeah, it's a, it's a pretty cool job. So the courts are quite traditional. Yes. Um, so can you talk us through some diversity in the court, and you touched on that slightly, but also in your role as IT and how you're challenging the system? Yeah. So the, the law is traditional, um, like the property sector. It has certainly has always been male-dominated. About 10 years ago, um, the Victorian Attorney-General talked about um, appointing equal men for women. And so over time, um, that has changed. I looked before I came here today, um, females are now 43% of the judges on our court. Um, now that's getting close obviously to 50%, so it's taken 10 years of equal 50-50 appointments to get there. You can imagine what the figures were back then. So um, we are um, reflecting um, more fairly obviously at 43% what society looks like. I think we are still, um, as, as a legal profession and the court, we're still challenged in respect of diverse cultural diversity and I think that probably is the next challenge of what we need to do to more fairly reflect society. Um, we've, we're getting it right in respect of women but I think there's work to do in, in the cultural space. Um, with technology, so I'm the IT judge, so um, when COVID hit I had the challenge of uh, two-thirds of the judges in my division were all over the age of 65 and some of them didn't have um, computers and didn't have the internet at home and so to make our division work quickly I just had to get everyone on board with that and I've got to say the judges embraced it so what you might have um, perceived as a dinosaur um, they were not dinosaurs they they knew to get get work done and to hear cases, they had to get on board and, and they embraced it with much enthusiasm. So we're only in the same number of cases in my division last year than the year before, um, literally the same. So, Which yeah. compared to the other courts, 
Yeah, look, that's in the civil division. There's a, there's a major delay in the criminal division, and that's been the hardest part of COVID. I think there are people on remand now who are not able to get a trial yet because we haven't been able to resume um, jury trials to the capacity of before. So the civil division is very different to the criminal division, but at least in the criminal division, we can say we've been able to hear the same number of cases, which I think is, yeah, pretty good going for perhaps a conservative um, institution like the courts. Yeah, well, thank you so much for your time. I think we're going to come back to some questions now, but I think there's some, some huge takeouts there for us all, you know, the importance of um, support from the leadership around diversity, as well as self-belief and having a go, getting in there. That's it. Thanks very much, Kate. We'll just ask a few questions before we conclude today. So I'll just do a quick round the grounds, which we might start with uh, you, uh, Your Honour, uh, Andrea Salmandras. So the first question is, how do you choose to challenge and what's your pledge? Um, I was thinking I choose to challenge. I'm going to have two. I'm going to be quick. I'm going to have two. Because I love <laughs> no, that's four fine. pots before, which I haven't heard. Is it selfish <laughs> to say I'm not four pots simmering at the one time? Is that fine. I think you do that. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's yeah. going to be, that's in my head. I love that. Um, <laughs> But seriously, my challenge is, as I indicated earlier, I think to improve cultural diversity within the court. And my way of doing that, I think, is um, as a judge, you get to employ two associates who are legally qualified. And I think um, often unconscious bias means that we pick people like us. And I think it's a matter of thinking differently. And that's something that I will commit to doing is to, and it's only two employees that come in, but the experiences they get as associates can, can lead on to amazing careers and ultimately judicial appointments. So that's what I commit to do. Fantastic. Amy, what about you? What's your um, pledge for International Women's Day? Sure. So in a similar vein, I've got two. <laughs> um, <laughs> one personal and one professional. And so on the professional level, uh, it's about continuing to undertake that gender transformative work across our business um, in ways that are inclusive and compassionate and keep women safe and raise awareness of the issues and the solutions. And so particularly in this given moment with, with COVID-19, we know that there is a shadow pandemic of sexual and family violence. And so we have a role in supporting all of our staff to be safe at work, having the right policies in place that help them to take emergency leave as necessary and give them access to salary advances so that they have financial independence. So that's that's my professional challenge. And on a personal level, as the mother of a teenage boy and a young girl, it's about role modelling healthy relationships and giving them the tools and inner resources and resilience to work through those big emotions, those little and, and big problems that um, Andrew talked about and understand what respect is and how to have frank and maybe difficult conversations as well. Fantastic. And James, same question for you. What's your pledge for International Women's Day? Well, I've have to do two, don't I? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, for me, uh, and my daughter's only three and a half, so she's not. She's in a very different stage of her life where this yep. is not really even a part of our household conversation. And but I, I really just want her to feel like she can do anything in the world, yep. and there's no barrier. At yeah, all. fantastic. I want that for my son too, but it's mm. kind of one of those things where yeah. it's just. It shouldn't be something that we have to discuss. It just should be normal. Yeah, exactly. Um, and then I guess on a work capacity, I really want to, yeah, break this cycle. Mm -hmm. um, hopefully we can do that quicker than 10 years in the legal industry and um, be, yeah, a bit more nimble because we don't need to, you know, obviously have the 
length of experience that you need to be in a senior position in the legal space. But um, yeah, just challenge each recruit uh, to make sure that we're getting the right people. That was Jay Lil's Eva Stack there rounding out the conversation with a question to the guests about what they choose to challenge, which is the tagline for this year's International Women's Day. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you'd like to hear more like this, make sure you subscribe to the podcast on whatever app you're listening to so you can be notified about new episodes. Also, if you're part of an event that is about real estate issues beyond just the buildings and would like to suggest recording it for an episode of this podcast, or if you'd like to put someone inspiring or interesting forward for a chat with me, I'd love to hear from you. You can get in contact easily through the JLL website. I'm Rebecca Kent.